This program is brought to you from Wisconsin Eyes Margaret Farrow Studio. Hello and welcome to Newsmakers. I'm your host, Lisa Pugh. Unlike other Governor Evers appointees, DHS Secretary-designee Kirsten Johnson has received somewhat of a warm welcome from the GOP legislature, getting approval, bipartisan approval, in a Senate committee earlier this month. Prior to that, she led the public health department in the city, the city of Milwaukee during the height of the pandemic. She now leads the state as the Medicaid program unwinds from pandemic enrollment, and the state faces other challenges. Welcome Secretary-designee Johnson. Thank you, Lisa, for having me today. Well, I know I read your bio. You have 20 years of public health experience. The governor asked you to step in. You've been with DHS since February. So is this your dream job? <laughs> to be honest, I never really, um, this job wasn't necessarily on the map. I w always was interested in working in DHS and working for the state. So it was an honor when I was asked. You, you've made it further in the appointment process than either of Governor Evers' two prior secretaries. We mentioned you got bipartisan approval. Do you think there's something about your experience or background that helped you to secure that support in that Senate committee? Absolutely, I think so. You know, my background in public health, I was a health officer in first Ozaki County and then Washington County, um, merged the two health departments and then um, spent some time in D.C. and then became the health officer, the health commissioner in the city of Milwaukee. So I have a lot of experience working across the aisle and um, bipartisan work is really important to me. Yeah, those are two conservative counties and Milwaukee County is certainly a different perspective. And Very different. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So I know you did get a lot of hot-button hot issue questions about the COVID pandemic during that hearing, asking you about masking, vaccinations, school closing, things like that. Do you think that the state public health system is ready for another pandemic? You know, that's a really good question. I think we're certainly more ready than we were in 2000 or in 2019 or 2020. Um, because I think we just we've learned a lot through that through the process over the course of the last three or four years, um, but I do think we have more we have more work to do in terms of a public health system broadly. Uh, we have 72 counties. Uh, we have health departments, for example, in the city of Milwaukee, where there's 11 different municipal departments. Um, you know, it's. I think public health has always been political, but it's certainly a lesson we learned over the course of um, the pandemic of how political it is. So I think we have work to do around sort of rebuilding our credibility, um, building relationships. I do think a silver lining of the pandemic, however, is the relationships that were deepened and strengthened. Certainly with in Washington, Ozaki, um, where I started the pandemic, I had relationships with many community partners, our school districts, um, our long-term care facilities, but I got to know many of those leaders on a very, much more personal level, which I think only helps us do our work better. So would you anticipate that we might face another pandemic in the near future? Is that something that you think we need to be prepared for? I think we need to be prepared. I'm not sure if it's in the near future, but I do think that pandemics are in our future. In our lifetime, in our we'll lifetime. likely experience another one. Um, in September, your department issued the, the typical fall flu season message. Now that comes with this 
triple threat message. People need to be prepared for RSV, flu, and COVID-19. With that triple threat that we have every fall now, do you anticipate that there would be more deaths in the state? I hope not. I think we have a lot of tools, and our job at DHS and within DPH and all of our local health departments is to really encourage people to use the tools that we have available to us. So vaccines are, are readily available. Um, you know, if we're sick, we can stay home. You know, we work in a world now where people potentially could work virtually, so they more comfortable calling in. Um, and then we have masks in our toolbox as well. So again, if you're symptomatic or if you've been around someone who is symptomatic, to wear a mask. Um, and you know, we've learned about social distancing. I think we've learned a lot, and we can use we can use those tools. Do you see any signs that the public has kind of let their guard down around COVID nineteen? I think certainly, but part of it is it's become, um, you know, it's it's becoming a more cyclical virus similar to flu. I think it's something we have learned to live with, and we have to learn to live with. I think the message that I really want people to carry forward or think about is everyone has to sort of weigh their own risk. So what's the risk to you? Um, you know, are you immun immunocompromised? Are you aging? Are, are there other risk factors that you need to be aware of and to, to, to be more cautious? Uh, as part of a federal requirement during the pandemic, I know that you're certainly aware that Wisconsin's Medicaid program had to operate under this continuous eligibility process. That's mm -hmm. now, that meant basically that people who uh, were determined eligible could not be disenrolled for typical reasons, what changes in their income, other factors. I know now that, that there's this unwinding happening. It started in June where you're going through the 1.6 million Wisconsinites mm -hmm. to determine are they actually eligible for Medicaid. Uh, I want to show a chart that shows kind of the the changes in the count of individuals enrolled in Medicaid programs currently, BadgerCare Plus, other state-funded programs that provide health care insurance coverage. Uh, this chart from your department includes data going back to March 2019, showing one year prior to the public health emergency. Last month, the BadgerCare Plus health insurance program ended coverage for about 26,000 Wisconsinites who were determined to no longer eligible, and that was just that program. Mm -hmm. How is the Medicaid unwinding process going overall? I think overall, overall we're doing really well. Um, we're processing roughly 130,000 people a month, which is a huge lift for um, our Medicaid program, for all of our enrollment specialists and income maintenance workers. I mean, they've really done a tremendous job. Certainly, there have been a few hiccups here and there, um, and we've learned, again, you know, we've been doing this now for a couple of months, but overall, I think we were well prepared and are doing a great job. I th we've really leaned in with our, to our community partners. Our healthcare partners have been a tremendous um, help just to make sure people are aware that they need to re-enroll, um, and we're really trying to make sure that people who still are eligible are maintain their coverage. I know that there was some concern from the federal level about administrative disenrollments, mm -hmm. about people not, like you say, being aware of mm -hmm. the need to reapply and to be redetermined. Are you seeing any signs that that's a concern in Wisconsin? We have had some challenges in terms of people being disenrolled. However, um, they do have a grace period, so it's a roughly a three-month grace period. Um, so uh, what's often happened is people have gone to sort of fill a prescription or they have a, uh, a medical appointment and they realize they don't have coverage and we're able to get them enrolled really quickly and then it's also retroactive. So, um, but we, we're working to make sure that that's really a minimal impact. Do you anticipate then that the state's overall Medicaid enrollment will return to pre-pandemic levels, or is there reason to believe that there's more need in the state now than in 2019? I think it's gonna be very similar to our pre-pandemic levels. 
Yeah, so there, there's not any lingering sort of health concern? No, I don't think so. And again, our community partners, our healthcare partners have been tremendous in terms of if people are um, unenrolled or disenrolled, they are either being connected into their employment, many people are employed into their um, employer-offered healthcare plans, or also into um, through the marketplace. Um, there was a rare case of measles reported just this month in the city of Milwaukee, and that's a disease that typically children are vaccinated for, and I was looking at the immunization rates for Wisconsin school-age children. The data from your department, 2022-23 school year, 89.9% of children receiving the, the basic requirement for immunization. That's down from about 92.3% 10 years ago. There's also a greater number of students that are opting out through special types of waivers. Mm -hmm. I think that that opt-out was 5.4%. That was 1.6% 25 years ago. It's kind of been inching up. Do you have a concern about the immunization rate of school-aged children in Wisconsin? I do. I think, you know, 89% is still good. 92% um, is certainly better. I am concerned that people... Um, and, you know, I think there's been a lot of controversy around the COVID vaccine specifically, which has lent, lent to the 5% um, of students having some sort of waiver in place, a personal conviction waiver. Um, you know, vaccines are effective when, when you have a population that has been vaccinated. Certainly in the measles case in Milwaukee, um, I think brought awareness to what can, you know, that there were, we do have vulnerab vulnerabilities that maybe we didn't have previously. Um, but, you know, we are strongly encouraging everyone to get their children vaccinated. Going back to school um, is an opportune time. We always see an uptick sort of in the fall as kids enroll in, into school. Um, but we are really trying to encourage parents and families to get their children vaccinated. What, 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 should what should be the takeaway about that kind of that case of measles and what that means for our state? I think it's just we there are vulnerabilities and risks that maybe didn't exist previously. I mean, with that 5% of, of students having some sort of waiver in place, those children are not protected from diseases like measles or um, chicken pox or other things. And so again, we're just really strongly encouraging families to get their children vaccinated to make sure they're protected. So what are, what are some of the steps that DHS has taken to kind of turn that trend around and create that communication? Yeah, you know, it goes back to what I was talking about before. I think part of it is around um, the credibility of public health and what we've been through over the course of the last few years. I think a lot of it's around communication. We're working really closely with primary care doctors and pediatricians. Again, sort of getting that messaging and also meeting people where they are. So where children show up, we want vaccines to be offered. So it, whether they are in a pharmacy or at their pediatrician's office or in urgent care, that vaccine's available for them. Um, shifting gears a little bit, I know last year DHS issued a public health advisory around um, fentanyl, uh, the fentanyl crisis. Mm -hmm. And that was after the number of fentanyl overdose deaths increased by 97% between 2019 and 2021. Uh, wh wh where are we at in the fentanyl crisis now? Sure. So opioid deaths have, have doubled since 2019 in, in Wisconsin. And um, what we're seeing is over 90% of opioid deaths are actually related to synthetic opioids like fentanyl. Um, so they are, fentanyl is being found in, in not only opiates, but also in things like methamphetamine and, and cocaine. And so just a word of caution, um, we really are encouraging people to have access to our Narcan um, and to test their um, their there are drugs for fentanyl. Yeah, fentanyl test, test strips are available. They're available through pharmacies. Um, you know, we're standing up a number of 
um, harm reduction vending machines throughout the state, they'll also be available there. So we really haven't turned the corner since that public health advisory was issued a year ago. No, we have not turned the corner. I think what we really are leaning into is sort of harm reduction in education and trying to make sure that people are w aware of the risk. Is there anything different about Wisconsin? Are, are other states facing similar Other crisis? states are absolutely facing the same challenges. Are there other things public policy-wise that can be done w regarding that? That's a really good question. Um, I think one of the things that we really need to think about is sort of where the source is coming from and how do we s stop fentanyl from being put into many of these drug sources. I think that's, you know, it's again, it's being put into pills, it's being put into powders. How do we stop that fentanyl addition? Because that's really what's killing people. Which is beyond public health. Absolutely, it's beyond public health. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, Last week, the governor announced that DHS was receiving $17 million in federal funding to enhance the 988, 988 suicide crisis hotline. Um, that, and there's more data that shows that for the second year in a row, Wisconsin's suicide numbers have been over 900. Mm -hmm. What, what's, what's the cause of that? Why are we seeing suicides on the rise in Wisconsin? So I think we were facing a mental health crisis before the pandemic. I think the pandemic was isolating for many people, um, I think especially for our young people, um, young women specifically. You know, I think we're just seeing what we knew was coming and then we added a pandemic, so people are under just a tremendous amount of stress. Um, and our 988 program has been very successful. They've received over 90,000 calls this year, contacts this year. Um, so I think there are resources available. We're really trying to funnel additional dollars into prevent suicides and save, save people's lives in Wisconsin. What can you tell us about that $17 million in terms of any plans for how it will enhance the work of the crisis line? So the crisis line specifically, um, you know, they're really looking at how do they expand their te text messaging and their chat messaging. So it's been, I actually had the opportunity to visit the call center. It was really amazing. But one of the things is text texting and chat messaging takes more manpower and resources because it can go on for a really long time. So people will kind of go silent and they come back. So it's really about staffing up and making sure that we have the resources available for people human resources available for people when they need them and that it's continuous um, and it's really good quality, but also some marketing and just making sure people are aware that the resource is available. You mentioned young women. Are there other populations in Wisconsin that you're focusing on or that are of concern when it comes to this issue of suicide? I think broadly we're concerned for everyone in Wisconsin. I mean, suicide has really increased, but it's really specifically young women. Young women. Um, you, me you mentioned in your confirmation hearing, and I know this is part of your work and your passion, is this focus on health equity. It's been kind of a thread throughout your career. The governor had a health equity council that you should report earlier this year. They talked about variations in health outcomes mm -hmm. across the state. I wanted to uh, show our viewers a map uh, from that report that shows a ranking of Wisconsin counties, the 2023 health outcomes. It, uh, health outcomes include uh, length of life, including premature death, life expectancy, infant mortality, and also measures of quality of life that include self-reported physical and mental wellness. The map that viewers are seeing is divided into four groups with lighter shading, indicating better health. The darkest counties are the lowest ranked in terms of health outcomes for citizens. There's a mix of rural and urban counties among those with the worst health outcome scores. For instance, Wisconsin's largest urban county, Milwaukee, ranks 70th overall. Forest and Menominee counties ranked uh, rank 71st and 72nd. I'm assuming you're familiar with this report. What are your takeaways regarding the 
health equity in Wisconsin? Sure. So we have seen significant disparities in, in health equity across the state, as you can see in the map. Um, but really thinking specifically, for example, in the city of Milwaukee or in Milwaukee County, we have significant health disparities around maternal and child health. Um, and then if you think more in rural communities, just access to care. You know, I think when we think about equity, we want to assure that everyone has equitable access to the same types of care. So in rural Wisconsin, it may be, you know, you're an hour from, from a grocery store and you need to get formula for your child. So what does that look like? That's deeply inequitable. Or, you know, it takes an hour for an ambulance to get pick you up and take you to a hospital if you're having an emergency. Um, and in Milwaukee, and this is also true for rural areas, you know, housing may be deeply inequitable in terms of the quality of the housing um, or what a family can afford. So thinking about poverty and uh, sort of those social determinants of health, you know, access to economic opportunity, similar to urban areas and rural communities, um, you know, it's really what's driving some of these significant disparities in health outcomes. You know, you mentioned housing, transportation, economic security. Those aren't necessarily traditional public health levers. Mm -hmm. Tell us about how you envision the department kind of moving in that direction. Sure. I think there's a lot of different things we can do and things we're thinking about. So with it, since I've been in my role, one of the things I've sort of challenged myself and my leadership team is, so what is the role of DHS? And, you know, it is to assure that people have can live their best lives in Wisconsin, their healthiest lives in Wisconsin. And what does that mean? Does that mean is it economic opportunity? Is it, like, access to care? Um, making sure that the care you're receiving is, quali is of quality and is, of sa is safe. Um, so how do we think about those things in the context of these social determinants, which we know are ultimately what drives health, those, those disparities I talked about. If you don't have good housing and you don't have transportation um, and you're worried about putting food on the table, the last thing you're worried about is potentially going to the physician. You have other bigger issues in your life. So how do we assure that people um, can address those social determinants so they can live their best lives, so their children can go to school, all of the things that we know ultimately lead to good health outcomes. I think the other piece that we need to discuss and just be very open about is um, race and racism and the role that has played. Um, certainly in Milwaukee, you know, the stress related to historical discrimination and what how that leads to poor health outcomes too, and how do we address those things in a very meaningful way? How can we be very thoughtful about how we invest our dollars? how we pay for our Medicaid, um, you know, what, it, what does Medicaid look like and how, what are the services that are provided through our Medicaid program? You know, just thinking very sort of holistically as an agency, how do we really start to move the needle on, it, on addressing some of these significant issues? Do you think you'll need to be collaborating with other state agencies? Oh, absolutely. And, and within DHS as well, and all of our all of our partners, how do we work more closely with our county partners and our municipal partners and our healthcare partners, and how do we collectively um, and collaboratively start to address some of these things? Because we, no one can do it alone. Um, you know, DHS is a huge <laughs> governmental agency. Um, these things did not happen overnight. It's going to take a long time to sort of um, to undo them and fix things, but. I, I think it can be done. I think it's just going to take some sort of long-term visioning and strategic planning on how do we actually make people's lives better. Is that something that's on your radar to do a strategic plan related to health equity? So my, I am, we are working on um, a strategic plan thinking about how, what is, the, like I mentioned earlier, what's the role of DHS? What is sort of the North Star for the Secretary's office? Regardless of who's sitting in my chair, regardless of who the governor is, what is it that brings us all to work every day? What what drives and gives us value, and what's our purpose? 
Um, and I think as we work through that, we will get to some of these sort of social determinants and how do we address them. You know, in your experience at the county and the city level and now as you've learned more about what's happening across the state, is there, what do you consider to be perhaps the most egregious health inequity in Wisconsin? That's a great, that's a great question. Um, I think the most egregious, egregious really is around maternal and infant um, child health outcomes, really the, just, just the disparity between um, birth outcomes for women. I think the other, just broadly. We mean specifically black women? Black women, in, black women specifically. Um, and you know, there's a lot of work going on in this space, and there's a lot of really great organizations and communities are doing great work. Wisconsin has the worst numbers? Are the worst or close to the worst. Um, but I think there are things we can do. I think we have to sort of reset the table. Um, I don't necessarily think a DHS is the person who should be the facilitator, but I know there's a lot of momentum um, and that we can do our work differently to assure that we're supporting the people who need the support most. You yeah. know, that word equity has certainly become sort of a hot button term in politics. Do you think there are any misconceptions about this concept of health equity that make it hard to move toward solutions in public policy? I think so. I think oftentimes, um, from my perspective, and this is you know having worked in Washington, Ozaki counties, and then Milwaukee, and my husband's grandmother lives in rural northern Wisconsin, and Kennan and Catawba, um, the the access to care she has is inequitable. And I think it is often misunderstood as something that we're experiencing in our urban centers. And if you really think about having equitable access to care, health equity, the fact that my husband's grandmother is isolated on the old family farm, you know, it, and an hour from an emergency room and quite distant from other family or potential caregivers is truly inequitable if you think about someone who's potentially living in, in the city of Milwaukee and is five minutes away from a hospital if, some, if she were to fall, for example, if someone were to fall. Um, and I think we lose sight of that when we have, when equity is really just focused on our urban centers. So I'm assuming that means a lot of education moving forward in order to move in the direction around health equity work that Absolutely. you're talking about. Absolutely. Um, speaking of hot button issues, the Republican-led legislature has sent a bill to the governor's desk um, that would ban medical intervention for minors related to hormone therapy, therapy and surgeries for gender transition. The governor said he will veto that. I'm wondering if you have a perspective on the health science in this area of gender transition. Right. So I think this is a deeply personal, um, you know, this is something that parents and children are grappling with. And if you look at our, if for example, suicide or mental health of children um, who are LGBTQ, they are deeply impacted and have significantly, they have, I mean, health disparity, there's a significant disparity between their mental health and their peers. Um, and I, you know, we need to support them and make sure that all children feel safe um, and that they have support from their families and from their educators. Um, and I, so I personally believe that this is, you know, I, I have deep empathy for these families, and I, and I believe that those children should have access to the, to the medical resources they need. You support the governor's veto. Absolutely. Uh, what is the status of Medicaid programs when it comes to paying for any of these types of therapies? So we follow the law. Um, the law clearly states that you that the Medicaid program pays for some of these services. Um, the demand is low. I think that's also a misconception that there's, you know, a huge number of these 
requests. Uh, right, and it, that's absolutely not the case. Um, on Monday, the Biden administration designated Wisconsin as a biohealth, uh, as a regional technology hub that's expected to kind of support Wisconsin's uh, biohealth industry. I know in the confirmation hearing you talked about your hopes for increasing the use of technology and the potential for AI mm -hmm. in the health space. W what do you think, what do you hope that healthcare looks like that's really kind of maximizing the potential for technologies and AI? So I think it's really exciting when you think about healthcare and or specifically thinking about our workforce. So the healthcare workforce in Wisconsin across the country has really been um, it's limited. We have fewer people in it. They've, they're exhausted coming out of the pandemic. Um, and I think we need to reserve our human resources for the, for the tasks that we need humans for. So for example, Medicaid unwinding. Um, if we had access to AI or some sort of technology that could sort of do some of those decision-making processes more quickly and then have humans do the, the processing that has, has more nuance and is more complicated, I think would really help us reserve our workforce for the work where we need a human. And I can think of many tasks in, related to sort of the administrative work that we do at DHS that happens within healthcare that could potentially be done um, more efficiently with AI. And then we can use our humans for those human interactions that we deeply need. There, there is the significant shortage in the workforce, and uh, uh, particularly in the long-term care space for vulnerable older adults and people with disabilities living in the community and other sorts of facilities. I know DHS has tried various strategies. Is there any uh, evidence that something is really working in that space? I don't know that anything's really not working. There are things that are, I mean, we have we have pilot projects going on that are very effective. We have the WIS Caregivers Program that seems to be um, effective. We've, you know, over 2,000 people have been enrolled to become either a CNA or a um, direct care worker that we're helping subsidize their education. Um, so we're trying a number, a variety of, of um, projects and ideas that could potentially help alleviate some of the workforce challenges. But at the end of the day, we want people to have access to care that's yeah, safe. Some of those jobs require a human. Mm -hmm, exactly. Um, and, but similarly, so when we're thinking about our nursing homes and long-term care facilities, you know, we are, we work, at, we're agents of CMS essentially in the nursing home space. We have surveyors who are going out. We have a shortage of surveyors. Um, you know, we're contracting out for some of that work, but how do we prioritize those surveys? How do we look at the complaints and potentially utilize AI to help us sort of sort through what's legitimate and what's not, and how do we make sure that people are safe? Do you yeah. believe that care is being compromised because of some of these worker shortages? I don't. I don't think so. I think, um, you know, I think the people who are working in these spaces are doing the very best they can. Um, you know, I haven't seen evidence of any. I mean, certainly there are, there have been errors and mistakes. You know, we've you know, we've seen this in every everywhere across the country. But I don't believe that people are compromising either their quality of care. I think people are still really trying to to make sure people have good access to. To care. I know the governor had put forward some uh, additional health care workforce initiatives in a special session bill, and um, so far that hasn't moved through the legislature. Are there any particular initiatives or programs or new ideas or funding other than AI and technology that you that you would like to see the state kind of get behind in this area? I, you know, I think some things have been put forward. Um, some things were taken out of the budget. Certainly, I think overall trying to trying to look at some of these projects that are most effective. So we have a, lot, a number of pilot projects through the ARPA dollars that were effective, um, subsidizing some of the um, wages for long-term care workers and nursing homes, et cetera. Um, you know, I think we're really 
trying to be creative in how we how we address it. Do you consider this to be among the most urgent of issues for your department? Absolutely. I think um, not only externally throughout the state of Wisconsin, but also internally. I think how do we bolster, support, recruit, um, maintain our existing healthcare workforce is critical. And that problem's not going away no, anytime it's not going soon. Away. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, even we talked a little bit about this in the beginning, even prior to the pandemic, there were concerns about the adequacy of the public health system in mm -hmm. Wisconsin. What, what, what's your overall vision? Where would you like to see Wisconsin's public health system in 10 years? That's a good question. So I've had experience now, um, you know, in a, in a smaller county and then a medium-sized county and merging those two counties and then, the, you know, the largest urban center in the state. Um, I think my vision is that we, no matter where you live, getting back to the health equity, that you have access to the, to, um, the resources you need to, to be healthy from your health, and you get those from a health department or from DHS or some, some that, you have, that you know where to go to sort of fill the gaps in the services you need. Um, whether that's WIC, um, which is Women, Infant, and Children Nutrition Program, or you know you need a vaccine that, or you are looking for housing, that there is it's a clear you clearly know where to go and how to get it, um, and that everyone in the community knows where to go and how to get it, um, so that there's sort of a robust sort of case management system in place across the state. Now, what that looks like specifically for public health or human services is less clear to me. It's something that I, th you know, I'm working through with my leaders and talking about, like, how do we make, how do we, how do we do the best we can with the resources we have? Wisconsin has historically been underfunded in public health. I think we're 49th in the country, um, and I also recognize the politics of of, of public health at this point. Um, you know, we had money come in through the pandemic, but. It's not sustainable. So again, how do we come up with a system that we can continue to support? I, mean, you know, I would love to see more money go into public health so we can have a really robust public health system. But short of that, how do we assure that what we have created or the work that we do is sustainable and, and um, well understood, I think is would be ideal. <laughs> 10 years, okay. Yep. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about your vision. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And thank you to the viewers of Newsmakers. Be sure to tune in again as we highlight the issues and sit down with the decision makers who make a difference for all of us. You have been watching a production of Wisconsin Eye, your unfiltered window into legislative deliberations and public policy programming, where our mission is to provide Wisconsinites an opportunity to access the legislative process and connect with conversations that inform our citizenry. Please consider supporting our mission, and thank you for watching. Wisconsin Eye. Policy made public.